Good morning, dear Sangha. Today is Sunday, October the 2nd, in the year 2011. We are on our fifth day of the retreat with the theme Cultivating the Mind of Love. And we are at the Magnolia Grove Meditation Practice Center. This is the last day of our retreat. And also the day of mindfulness for those of us who did not have, uh, do not have uh, <coughs> a chance to attend the whole retreat. In the Buddhist tradition, we speak of uh, a kind of uh, mind. It's called uh, beginner's mind. The beginner's mind is a very beautiful mind. A source of energy the willingness to practice, to get uh, freedom, release, enlightenment, and to serve others. That is a tremendous source of energy that makes us very alive, very dynamic. And with that uh, source of energy called the beginner's mind, we are not afraid of obstacles. We can. Uh, we are ready to surmount, to overcome all kind of obstacles in order to realize our dream, our intention, our aspiration. That is the willingness to get enlightened, to get free, in order to serve other living beings. And Shidatta Gautama, when he left home at the age of 29. He had a very strong aspiration to practice. And at the age of 35, he got enlightened. And uh, he was able to begin serving uh, uh, humanity and other living beings. And we who are friends of the Buddha, who are his disciples, we want to have that kind of uh, aspiration too. We want to have that kind of uh, willingness too. We want to have that kind of energy too, so that we are strong enough in order to continue with our practice, to free ourselves, and to serve other people. And that is why our retreat has the name, has the title, Cultivating the Mind of Love. The mind of love is the beginner's mind, very beautiful, very strong. And as a practitioner, you have to, to nourish that mind so that it will last for a long time. 
Because when we can keep that mind alive, we'll be, we'll, we are always full of energy in order to, to go on with the practice, no matter how difficult uh, uh, the situation is. So uh, during this retreat, many of us have uh, allowed the mind of love, the mind of enlightenment, to arise in our heart. And if we know how to fit, how to maintain that, uh, that mind of love, the mind of enlightenment, bodhicitta, alive, and then we will have enough energy to continue with our practice, to serve other people. We know that uh, there's a lot of suffering in the world, and sometimes we feel helpless. But with uh, bodhicitta, the mind of love, the mind of enlightenment, we are not discouraged we'll be able to continue so that we can uh, relieve the suffering in us and help relieve the suffering in society and in the world. Uh, Today's Dhamma talk uh, will be a little bit difficult for those who uh, come for the first time. But if you have attended the first day, the second day, the third, the fourth day of the retreat, it, it will be an easy Dhamma talk. <laughs> it's only a continuation of the other talks. And uh, maybe um, if, you, if we have uh, the CD of the other talks, they will help us to understand uh, deeply the talk today, which is very much the cream of the teaching of the Buddha. Uh, made uh, into uh, a short uh, presentation. In Buddhism, we speak of two kinds of truth, the conventional truth and the ultimate truth. And both kinds of truth uh, are useful. And in science also, there are two kinds of truth. There is a classic, classical science represented by Newton. It's equivalent to the conventional truth in Buddhism. And there is the modern physics with quantum physics, quantum mechanics. It has a very different way of looking at reality, understanding reality. And it also uh, helps us to understand the true nature of uh, reality. And in order to go to the second uh, truth, you have to be able to release what you have learned from the conventional truth. What you have learned from Newton, you have to release in order to truly understand the quantum mechanics. And so on. This is the same with uh, the Buddhist teaching. There is the conventional truth, 
where we speak of birth and death, Buddha and living beings, enlightenment and um, delusion, suffering and happiness. But when we come to the ultimate truth, these ideas about birth and death, beginning and ending, inside, outside, suffering and happiness, we have to overcome in order to leave it behind before we can understand the absolute, the ultimate truth. And that kind of insight is the highest. When you are able to touch the ultimate reality, you might call it God. But in Buddhism, we do not use the word God. We use the word suchness, the ultimate reality. When we touch the ultimate reality, we are free from all notions, including the notion of being and non-being. Inside, outside, subject and object. In uh, neuroscience, in modern science, people still struggle a little bit about uh, consciousness and the world of reality. Consciousness is something subjective in here. And reality outside, the reality is something outside. So uh, how can the consciousness inside reach out in order to understand the reality outside? And science has begun to discover the truth that you cannot be an observer standing outside of the object you observe. In order to understand, you should stop being an observer from the outside. You should try to become a participant. And scientists have begun already to speak about that. So in order for True understanding to be possible, you have to remove the frontier between participant, between uh, uh, observer and object being observed. Whether that is an electron, or an atom, or anything. But if you think that you are an observer completely outside of the object you observe, there is no hope that you can truly understand the object of your observation. You should try to be a participant and not merely an observer from outside. And modern science have, has begun to see that, the inside, outside, object and subject. The insight that the Buddha got at the foot of the body tree is the kind of insight that helped him to liberate, to be liberated from all fear, anger, despair. And that insight, you have to get it directly and not through 
explanation. Because when you explain, you, you offer notions and concepts. But notions and concepts can never be the reality. Suppose there is um, someone who has not uh, never eaten a fruit called kiwi. And you try to tell him how is the taste of uh, the kiwi fruit. No matter how many notions and concepts you have, it's impossible for him to get the true taste of kiwi. So true insight is like that. Prasnya, insight, like that. You can speak about insight, but you are using notions and concepts. We can make good use of notion concepts in order to practice deep looking. Deep looking is meditation. And we can get the insight by ourselves. Insight cannot be given us, cannot be given us by another person. If you don't eat the kiwi, well, you cannot understand, you cannot experience the true taste of kiwi. You only have a notion. That kind of insight from time to time uh, is called a right view in Buddhism. And right view make up uh, one of the eight elements of the noble uh, path presented by the Buddha. There is a path leading to liberation and true happiness. It's called the noble eightfold path. And we, we have learned about uh, Right mindfulness, which is one element. Right concentration, which is uh, another element of two path. And when we speak of uh, right view, that is uh, another element of uh, the, the path. And after that, we have right thinking, right speech, right action, right diligence we have learned, and right livelihood. And the five mindfulness trainings that many of us received today, this morning, is a very concrete expression of that path. The path of right view, right thinking, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right diligence, right mindfulness, and concentration. And one day there is a monk whose name is uh, Katya Yana, Kakayana. He came and asked Buddha, Dear teacher, you have uh, spoken many times of right view. What is, what does it mean exactly, right view? He's trying to get a notion. <laughs> <laughs> In the Zen tradition, every time uh, a student comes and asks uh, a question having to do with notion, the teacher used to, to respond like, uh, Have you eaten your breakfast? <laughs> yes, teacher, I have had my breakfast. Then go and wash your bowl. <laughs> that is the Zen language. 
Insight cannot transmit it to you through concepts. You have to do it. And if you know how to wash your bowl mindfully, you might get the insight. So that day the Buddha said, Dear one, right, right view is the kind of view that transcends the notion of, birth, of being and non-being. People in the world, they are caught either, either by the notion of being or the notion of non-being. That is why they cannot touch reality. So if we qualify the cloud in the sky as a being, we are wrong. And if we say that the cloud is not there, the cloud belongs to the realm of non-being, we are also wrong. The cloud cannot be described in terms of being and non-being. Let us meditate a little bit on that. We see a cloud floating in the sky. We are sure that the cloud is. But yesterday we did not see the cloud. And we may think that the cloud has come from the realm of non-being into the realm of being. From nothing, you suddenly become something. Or before our birth, we think that we did not exist before our birth. We begin to exist only from the day we are born. It means that we also has come from the realm of non-being to the realm of being. And later on, maybe 100 years from now, we will touch a point where we will stop being and we will pass into the realm of non-being. From someone, you suddenly become no one. That is uh, the way we think. To be means from the realm of non-being, you pass into the realm of being. And to die means from the realm of being, you pass in the, to the realm of non-being. And that kind of thinking, the Buddha said, is not right thinking. Because we are caught in the realm, in the notion of being and non-being. And let us continue with the meditation on the cloud. Looking deeply into the cloud, you can see that the cloud has not come from the realm of non-being. You can see that before it, 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 take, it took the form of a cloud, it was already the, the water in the ocean and the heat generated by the sun, many things like that. So it has not come from the realm of non-being. So the notion of birth cannot be applied to reality. The cloud has not been born. The cloud is the continuation of something. And if we look deeply with 
meditation we see, we can identify that something that was the former life of the cloud, the water in the ocean, the heat and so water vapor. So the nature, the true nature of the cloud is nature of no birth. Because in our mind, according to our wrong thinking, to be born means from nothing you become something. From no one you suddenly become someone. And that is not true when applied to a cloud and to anything. Nothing has come from the realm of non-being into being. The moment we call the moment of birth is only a moment of continuation. The cloud has now the form of a cloud, but before getting the form of a cloud, she had other forms. And later on, the cloud may take another form, like rain, or ice, or snow. So this is a new manifestation. This is a form of continuation, not a birth. So next time when you celebrate your birthday, instead of singing happy birthday to you, we can sing happy continuation day to you. Because that is only a continuation. And it, you know, we know that it is impossible for a cloud to die. It is impossible for something to pass from the realm of being into the realm of non-being. A cloud can become snow or ice or rain or tea, but never nothing. And that is why we can confirm that the nature, the true nature of the cloud is the nature of no, no dying, no death, no birth and no death. Not only a cloud like that is like that, but all of us are like that. Each of us has the nature of no birth and no death. And the notion of birth and death created a lot of fear, despair, and so on. So in the realm of uh, conventional truth, we might confirm the existence of birth and death. Uh, when we are born, we have a certificate, birth certificate. <laughs> and when we die, we have a death certificate. But that's not true, because our true nature is no birth and no death. These certificates do not have real values. Suppose you give to, the, to your cloud a birth certificate. <laughs> and suppose you give her a death certificate. It's funny. Because your cloud is still there in her new form. And when you drink your tea, you can smile your cloud in her new form. 
Hello there, my beloved cloud. I'm glad you are there for me. So if you have lost someone dear to you, don't think that she has disappeared. She has passed from the realm of being into non-being. She continues always. And with uh, the practice of uh, meditation, you can still recognize her in her new form. The rain is falling happily down there. And you are crying because you don't see your cloud. You think that your cloud is dead. The rain is calling you and saying, Darling, darling, I'm here. Don't you see me? And if you can see your beloved cloud in her new form, you stop crying. There's no longer any grief. And your own true nature is also the nature of no birth and no death. So the notion of birth and death are linked with the notion of being and non-being. And all four notions constitute our wrong view, wrong thinking. Suppose I draw this line representing time. And uh, we take uh, B as uh, the moment of our birth. And we describe uh, the segment before B as uh, non-being. And we take the segment B, BD, D means death, as uh, representing being. And when we come to point D, uh, we pass from the realm of being into non-being again. So to be born, this is our way of thinking, is to pass from the realm of non-being to the realm of being. And to die means to pass from the realm of being into the realm of non-being again. So the notion of birth and death have to do with the notion of being and non-being. When we ask the question whether God exists or not, we are caught. because we still think of God in terms of being and non-being. But God is the ultimate. The ultimate is free from the notion of being and non-being. You cannot describe God in terms of being and non-being. In fact, you cannot describe your cloud in terms of being and non-being, birth and death. How can you describe God in terms of being and non-being. There is a, a theologian who say that God is the ground of being. According to this teaching, that is not right thinking. Because if God is the ground of being, who will be the ground of non-being? 
So God ultimately should transcend both concepts of being and non-being to say that God doesn't exist, that is wrong. But to say that God exists is equally wrong because God, the ultimate, transcends both notions, being and non-being. And right view is, first of all, the kind of insight that is free from the notion of being and non-being, birth and death. And when we get rid of these four notions, we are free. Right view is a kind of view that transcends all pairs of opposite, not only being and non-being, birth and death, but left and right, above and below, inside and outside, subject and object. When God say, said, let the light be, the light will say, I have to wait. <laughs> and God asks, why do you wait? You have to wait. I, I wait for darkness and we will manifest together at the same time. Because light and darkness, they are a pair of opposites. One cannot be without the other. It's left and right. But God said, well, darkness is already there. And I said, in that case, I am already there. (laughs) You cannot expect to have the left without the right. You can hope to eliminate the right and keep only the left. It's very naive. If politically you are on the left, (laughs) don't try to remove the right. If the right right disappears, you disappear. (laughs) Suppose you try with a knife to cut off the right. And no matter how, how much you want to cut off, this place where you cut off becomes the right. <laughs> so left and right is a pair of opposite. Birth and death is another pair. And uh, being and non-being is another pair. And then now we speak of uh, subject of uh, cognition and object of cognition, of perception. Many scientists are still caught in the, in the idea that consciousness, the subject of cognition, is something um, subjective trying to reach out to the objective world. So there is a division between subject and object. But many scientists have begun to realize that 
you cannot be an outside observer. You are the thing that you are observed. You have to learn to be a participant in order to truly understand what you want to understand. There's a beautiful example uh, in the Buddhist literature. There's a grain of salt who wants to know how salty is the sea water. And the grain of salt is uh, not in the water. And the ocean said, if you want to understand, jump into the ocean and become one with us. And that's right. If you stay outside as a separate thing, you cannot hope to understand. If you become one with the object that you understand, you will have a deep and complete understanding. You know how salty uh, it is, the water in the ocean. In the French language, there is a verb, comprendre, means to understand, comprendre. It, there is uh, the prefix com and uh, Prendre. Prendre means to take, to pick up, to take, to take something and to become one with it. If you want to understand her, you should be her. If you want to understand him, you should be in his skin. You should be him. If you, if you stay outside and look, at the other object, uh, like something existing outside of you, there will be no hope that you will understand. So to understand is to be one with it. It's like when you eat the kiwi, <laughs> you are one with the kiwi. This is a box of match, matches I brought all the way from France. And uh, let us uh, try to talk to, to the flame. The flame is somewhere there. 
And we cannot say that uh, she belongs now to the realm of non-being. She's, she is somewhere there. Maybe hidden in the box and outside of the box. There is oxygen outside of the box. And oxygen is uh, an essential element for the manifestation of uh, the flame. So we can talk to the flame like this, uh, my dear little flame, I know you are there somehow. We don't believe that you belong to the realm of non-being. Why don't you manifest yourself for us? And this is a meditation. And if we have, uh, we have uh, enough mindfulness and concentration, we can hear the answer of the flame. Dear Thay, dear Sangha, I am ready to manifest. All conditions are sufficient except one, a movement of your fingers. <laughs> it's true that the flame is already in there. The conditions for the flame to manifest are sufficient except one. So we will provide uh, her with the last condition so that she can manifest for all of us. Thank you, my dear little flame, for having manifested for us. You are beautiful. Please stay a little bit longer. Now we should ask the flame. My dear little flame, where have you come from? When you when we fall in love with someone, we might like to ask him or her that question. My beloved one. Where have you come from? You are so wonderful, so beautiful. The flame will say, Dear Thay De Sangha, I have come from nowhere. I have not come from the north. I have not come from the south. I have not come from the west, from the east. When conditions are sufficient, I manifest. My nature is the nature of no coming. My nature is uh, non-local. And we know that the flame is telling the truth. She has not come from the north. She has not come from the west either. 
her nature is non-local. When conditions are sufficient, she just manifests. So your beloved one may say the same. Dear one, I have come from nowhere. When conditions are sufficient, I manifest. Be careful. If you are not careful, I will disappear someday. <laughs> if conditions are not, are no longer, <laughs> I will disappear someday. Be aware. <laughs> That's true. That's true. If you are not attentive, if you are not mindful, if you do not know how to cherish his or her presence, she will end her manifestation and manifest otherwise. And now we ask, the second question, my dear little flame, I know that you have not passed from the realm of being into non-being. Tell us, please, where have you gone? We miss you. And if you listen, you can hear, dear Thay, dear Sangha, I have not gone anywhere. When conditions are no longer sufficient, I just stop manifest my manifestation. My nature is non-local. I have not gone anywhere. And we know that this is the truth. The nature of the flame is no birth, no death, no being, no non-being, no coming, no going. Coming and going are also a pair of opposite that we have to to remove. Inside, outside is a pair of opposite. Subject of cognition and object of cognition are also a pair of opposite. If scientists continue to believe that uh, consciousness is something outside, of the reality observed, they are still caught in a pair of opposites. Let us invite the flame to manifest again. And let us uh, produce another flame. Now, it looks like we have two flames, two different flames. And now we can ask, my dear flame, are you the same flame with the flame I saw before, or are you a totally different one? And this is meditation. You ask the right question. And you use concentration in order to focus on it. And make a breakthrough. 
the flame will say, dear Thầy De Sangha, I am not exactly the same flame with the other flame. But I am not a totally different flame either. My nature is no sameness, no otherness. Sameness and otherness are also a couple, a pair of opposites. And reality transcends. The notion of uh, sameness and otherness. Suppose you look at uh, your family album and you see yourself as uh, a baby. Your, your mother took your picture when you were five, five months old. And you ask the question, am I the same person with that baby? Or am I a different person? You are so, you look so different. Form, feelings, perceptions, mental formation, consciousness, you are very different from the five elements of the baby. So the question is whether you are the same with the baby or you are a different person. Please remember the other day we, uh, we talked to the children about the grain of corn and the plant of corn. And the children learned that the plant of corn is a continuation of the grain of corn. The grain of corn has not died. She continues in her new form, the plant of corn. And even if uh, you no longer see the grain of corn, the grain of corn is still there in her new form, the plant of corn. So you and the baby in a picture, you are not the same. How can you be the same? There's a big difference. But you are not a totally different person either. You are the continuation of the, of the baby. So sameness and otherness is another of opposite that should be transcended. We have birth, and death. We have being, and non-being. We have uh, coming and going. We have uh, sameness and otherness. And all these pairs of opposite should be transcended in order for us to see the true face of reality. I hope that this teaching of Buddha can inspire uh, 
scientists about time in a way to inquire about reality. When we look into the son or the daughter, we can see the father in him, in her. We can see the mother in him or in her. And if we try to remove the element father from him, he, he can no longer be there. If we try to remove the element mother from her, the daughter cannot continue to be there. So the daughter is a continuation of the mother, of the father, the son also. The truth is that the son is a continuation of the father and is a father. The truth is that the son is not exactly the same with the father, but he is not a totally different person from the father either. It's like uh, the grain of corn and the plant of corn. The plant of corn is not the grain of corn, but is not a different thing from the grain of corn. So that is uh, reality free from notions, concepts. Let us look at uh, something like a flower. These flowers grow by themselves um, in uh, this practice center. The sisters have not planted them, they just manifest like that. Looking deeply into this flower, we see non-flower elements, like the sunshine, the cloud, the earth, and so on. And uh, we call all these elements, non-flower elements. And a flower is made only of non-flower elements. The sun is made of non-sun elements, including the element father, mother, grandfather, grandmother, and so on. A flower cannot be by herself alone. Her manifestation is based on the coming together of many non-flower elements. And that is why in the teaching of the Buddha we have the expression interbeing.
raise the sahabu, the Sanskrit word sahabu means co-being. You, you cannot be by yourself alone. You have to interbe with everything else in the cosmos. If I remove the sunshine from me, I collapse. If I remove the cloud from me, I collapse. If I remove my father from me, I collapse. I'm made only of non-me elements. Nothing can be by itself alone. Everything has to interbe with everything else. That's the right view. And that is why the notion of self should be removed. No self doesn't mean that you are not there. <laughs> no self means you are made only of non-you elements. There is a very well-known sutra, holy scripture, that served, that uh, is studied in Zen monasteries. It's called the Diamond Sutra. In the Diamond Sutra, we are urged to remove four notions. In fact, there are many notions to be removed, that the, but the Diamond Sutra only focus on four notions. The first notion is notion of self. We believe that uh, we can be by ourselves alone. The flower can be by herself alone, but that is not true. Looking deeply, we see that a flower is made only of non-flower elements. And that is why the flower should remove the notion that she can exist all by herself. She inter-ease with the cosmos. I inter-am with all of you. I inter-am with the whole cosmos. I think interbeing is a very important word. And that should be put into the dictionary very soon. <laughs> it's closer to the truth than the word to be. So if we can remove the notion of self as uh, an independent entity, well, we are free from many, many afflictions. If we believe there is a separate self, we have the tendency to compare that self with other selves. And from there is born the complex of superiority that makes you suffer. From there, there is born the complex of inferiority that makes you suffer. And even the complex of equality makes you suffer because uh, that is the outcome of comparison. If uh, you don't see a separate self, there is no 
comparison anymore, and you are free. Not only from the inferiority complex, the superiority complex, but the equality complex, because many of us try to be equal. But you, you are in him, and he is in you. The second notion is, is a notion of man, Purusha, human beings. According to the teaching, man is made only of non-man elements, namely mineral, vegetal, and animals. Man is a very young species on earth, and yet we think that we are the boss. <laughs> we have done a lot of damage to the kingdom of God. Because we do not know who we are. We have human ancestors, but we have also animal ancestors. We have also vegetal ancestors. And we have also mineral ancestors. They are still in us. And with every step, we carry within us all our ancestors, mineral, vegetal, animal, and human ancestors. No matter where we go, we bring our ancestors along. And if we are happy, our ancestors in us are happy. If we suffer, our ancestors in us to suffer. So the Diamond Sutra teaches that man is only made of non-man element. In order to protect man, you have to protect the environment. You have to protect the mineral, the animal, and the vegetable. And that is why the Diamond Sutra seems to be the oldest text on the teaching of deep ecology. And the third notion to be removed is uh, living beings. And this word living beings here means it means uh, a non-Buddha being. A Buddha is uh, an enlightened person. They call a body. Body means enlightenment. Sattva. Sattva means a being. A Buddha is an enlightened being. A Bodhisattva. The Buddha is a great being, Mahasattva. Bhutat, Yak Hữu Tình, Mahatat, Đại Hữu Tình. And as uh, 
A human, we may have uh, some complex that we are not a Buddha, we are not a great being. And so the notion of a living being as uh, different from an enlightened being, a great being, that, that notion, that feeling of inferiority should be removed. In fact, if you want to find a bodhisattva, if you want to see Mahasattva, you have to look into yourself. That is the safest to find a Buddha. Not in the sky, not in the direction of the west, not in the Buddha hole. The Buddha is in your heart. Because you have the seed of enlightenment in you. You have the seed of understanding and compassion in you, and that is Buddhahood, Buddha nature. So the safest place, the surest place to find the Buddha is in the human being, and not in a god outside, above. So there is a teaching in the Rinzai school, Lamte school, uh, It means uh, human beings and Buddhas, they are not two different things. When you look into the Buddha, you see a human being. And if you have not seen the Buddha, the living being in the Buddha, you have not seen the Buddha. A living being is someone who has suffered, who has lived in delusion. And the Buddha is someone that has suffered, that has had afflictions, that has uh, practiced to transform. So when you look at the Buddha, you have to see non-Buddha elements, like suffering, the practice, and so on. And if you do not see the suffering in the Buddha that has been transformed, you have not seen the Buddha. You think that the Buddha is made of uh, only non-suffering elements. When you look into the flower of lotus, you have to see the mud in it. Because you need the mud in order to make uh, a lotus flower. You cannot plant a lotus on marble. So if you, when you look at the lotus flower, and you, if you don't see the mud in it, you have not seen the lotus. When you look at the Buddha, if you don't see the suffering as one element that have made a Buddha, you have not seen the Buddha. So don't discriminate against Buddha, uh, between Buddha and non-Buddhas. And when you look at the human being who suffers, you have to see the Buddhahood in him or her. You should see the capacity to become awake, to become enlightened, to become compassionate and understanding in him or her. 
that is called Buddha nature in every of us. And if you look into a human being, no, uh, no matter how much he or she suffers, you have to see the Buddha in him. Otherwise, you have not seen him or her. When I was ordained as a novice monk at the age of uh, 16, my teacher gave me a, a verse to memorize before I bow to the Buddha. Before bowing to the Buddha, you have to prepare yourself. Otherwise, bowing to the Buddha will have no effect. And that is a kind of meditation. It begins like this. The one who bows and the one who is bowed to, the nature of both is equally empty. A Buddha is made only of non-Buddha elements. And I am made only of non-me elements. So it is equal to saying, Dear Buddha, I am going to bow to you, but I know that you are empty of a self. You are made of, of only non-Buddha elements. And I can see me in you. Uh, by that time, you have already seen the Buddha. And I, who, are, who is bound to you, I know that I am made of non-me element, and the element of enlightenment is in me too. You are in me. So you got the insight that you are in the Buddha, and the Buddha is in you, and that's when you can bow. And a bow like that, connect the, the two, and create true communion. Otherwise, if you think of a Buddha as a separate entity, there's no connection possible. Communication is possible. Communion is impossible. I think the same thing must, true, must be true when you bow to Jesus, bow to God. You have to see you in God and God in you. In order for true communion to be possible. We learn that Jesus is the Son of God. But we also learn that He is the Son of Man. It's very significant. He is both the Son of God and the Son of Man. It means God is in man and man is in God. And that is why connection is possible, communion is possible. And to me, Jesus is made of non-Jesus elements also. Suppose you remove God the Father from him, he can no longer be Jesus. Suppose you remove the Holy Spirit from him, he is no longer Jesus. So the teaching of the Trinity applies into this. There is the same wisdom, the same insight in both traditions. And if you imagine that God and Jesus are an entity that wholly outside 
there will be no real communication, no real uh, uh, connection, no real communion. That is why the insight of interbeing is very crucial. The insight of no self is very crucial. The insight of Buddha and living beings are not two separate entities is very important. I think many uh, uh, Christians, uh, mystics, have realized this. And that is why bowing to the Buddha is not really worshipping. It's a meditation. Before, 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 because before you bow, you have to visualize, you have to get insight that the Buddha is empty, you are empty, you are in the Buddha, and the Buddha is in you before you bow. And your bow will have an effect of transformation and healing. We have uh, among us uh, a monk, an American monk, who had been a Catholic priest before he became a Buddhist monk. He was a theologian. He still loved Jesus and Christianity. But he finds that in Buddhism he has the tools, the instruments, in order to practice the teaching of Christianity. So learning about Buddhism can help you to be a better Christian and vice versa. So the notion of a living being as completely separated from Buddha, from Bodhisattva, from Jesus, from God, that notion should be removed because it can create division, discrimination, and suffering. And the fourth notion that the Diamond Sutra advises us to remove is the notion of lifespan. Remember the line representing time? We believe that we begin with the point B and we will end at point D, death. And uh, BD represents uh, the realm of being, and D represents uh, the realm of non-being. So the notion that we only exist from point B and will stop to exist from point D, that notion of lifespan should be removed. You are free from time. You are liberated from the notion of time. Your nature, true nature, is nature of no birth, no death, no being, no non-being. And to be caught in the idea that I will die someday, I will become nothing someday, 
that should be removed. If a cloud cannot die, how can we die? We continue always in different forms, more or less beautiful, according to our practice. (laughs) (laughs) So speaking of uh, the Noble Eightfold Path, we have to mention the eight elements of the path. And the first element uh, we have spoken of this morning is uh, right view. Right view is the kind of view that is free from all wrong views. Wrong views born from notions like uh, being, non-being, birth and death, coming, going, sameness, when uh, uh, otherness, and so on. And right view is a kind of insight that that uh, that help us to be liberated from all kind of discrimination, dualism. We are no longer caught between left and right, above and below, white and black inside and outside, creator and creature, and so on. We remove all pairs of opposite, and this is the ultimate truth. And sometimes it's called Nirvana, sometimes it's called uh, Mahaprasna Paramita, the great uh, uh, insight that has the power to, trans- to transport us to the others, uh, the shore the show of freedom. And if uh, basing on right view, non-discrimination, non-separation, non-dualistic, non-dualism, and then we can practice uh, right thinking. Right thinking is the kind of thinking that goes along the line of right view. No discrimination. No separation. You are in me, I am in you. There is no discrimination whatsoever. And all of us know a lot of suffering has been created on the base of discrimination. Religious discrimination, racial discrimination, and all kind of discrimination. And we have to practice in order to help uh, remove discrimination in the mind of uh, people. Right thinking is uh, thinking, the kind of thinking that produces uh, understanding and compassion. And we can, at any time, produce a thought in the line of right thinking. A thought that is free from discrimination. A thought that is full of understanding and compassion. And as a practitioner, we can produce a thought like that several times a day. 
as soon as you are able to create, to, to produce a thought of, of reconciliation, of compassion, of understanding, that thought begins to heal us and heal the world. Right thinking can heal the world, can save the world, and wrong thinking can, can destroy the world. Wrong thinking can lead to suicide, can lead to terrorism, and so on. So if uh, we cultivate the right view, and then our thinking will be right thinking. Suppose we produce a thought of anger, of fear, of hate, of despair. That's not good for our health. If we keep producing thoughts of hate, fear, despair, it will destroy, destroy our body, our mind, and destroy the world. That is why as good practitioner, we have to cultivate the practice of uh, right thinking. Our thought should be characterized by non-discrimination, mutual understanding, and compassion. We understand the suffering inside. We understand the suffering of the other person of the world. And from there, compassion arises. And thinking like that is very healing. And uh, we need uh, a teacher, we need uh, fellow practitioners in order to support us, to guide us in the practice of uh, right thinking. Right thinking can change the world, can save the world. And then with uh, the foundation of right view, we can practice right speech. Anything we say has the power to inspire people, to restore faith, to restore communication, to reconcile, to help people feel better, to, to show the way. That is the right, the, the kind of speech that we practice. Right speech, loving speech, goes along with uh, compassionate the, uh, listening. That is uh, the object of the fourth uh, uh, mindfulness training. Many of us have received uh, the five trainings this morning, and the fourth is about the practice of right speech and deep listening. The practice of uh, right speech and deep listening help us restore communication and reconcile. A few days of practice can already help. When we are able to see the suffering in the other person, when we have uh, the intention to help him or her suffer less, and then we are already ready to practice uh, deep listening and loving speech in order to restore communication and to reconcile. The miracle of reconciliation always takes place in our retreats.
when we when we write a letter, when we say, send an email, when we use our mobile phone, we can very well speak, uh, practice uh, right speech. It can create, uh, it can restore communication, it can inspire people, it can make a person happy right away. Darling, I'm here for you. Darling, I know you are there. Uh, that make me very happy. Darling, I know that you are difficulties. I'm here for you. All this kind of uh, uh, practice can help bring relief and healing. So as a good practitioner, we are able to to practice uh, loving speech uh, several times a day. It does not cost anything. It can, it can restore communication. It can make a person happy right away. Be generous. Because the other person has good seats in him or her. And if you recognize the good seats in him or her, they will become a happy person and you will profit from his or her happiness. The effect comes very quickly. And then with the right view, uh, we can practice uh, right action. Action here is uh, physical bodily action. Anything we do with our body that can support, that can protect, that can save, is right action. Because you are motivated by non-discrimination, by understanding and compassion, everything you do will be right action. And a good practitioner can perform many right actions during the day. Even saving an aunt, uh, uh, refraining from using um, the kind of product that is polluting, it's all good action. And these three uh, practice, one about mind, one about uh, speech, mouth and one about body are three forms of actions. To think is already to act. When you produce a thought of compassion, a thought of understanding, reconciliation, it begins to heal you and help heal the world. And if you keep producing thought like that, you send your life, you send the world in a good direction. But if uh, by mistake you have produced a thought of hate and anger, mindfulness will help you to recognize that. Suppose yesterday I produced uh, a thought of uh, discrimination or anger. And today during meditation, sitting meditation, I recognize that it's not good action. So I sit down 
and I concentrate and I produce another thought. A thought in the opposite direction. I said, sorry, I did not mean to produce that thought yesterday, but because I'm not very mindful. So today I produce this thought full of non-discrimination, compassion. And as soon as you produce the new thought, it will erase, delete the other thought. That's the transformation. You can change the past. You can change uh, even the past. You can prepare for the future. Yesterday, we, uh, we told the story of a war veteran who killed uh, children in Vietnam. And he suffered. But later on, he was told that he can use his life in order to save uh, many children in the future. So he was able, by this kind of practice, uh, remove the complex of guilt and get back the joy of living. Because actually he can help save many uh, children from dying. So thinking is already action. Speaking is already action. Speaking well can promote peace, reconciliation. And uh, three kinds of actions, mind, speech, and body, is what we produce every day. Suppose we look at the orange tree in the backyard. The orange tree produces what? Beautiful orange leaves. She produces beautiful orange blossoms. She produces beautiful oranges. And we do the same. As a good practitioner, we can produce beautiful thought, beautiful speech, and beautiful action. And that is our continuation. Action, our action, we are our action. Like uh, blowing is the action of the wind. And falling is the action of uh, the rain. And uh, it is very clear that we are our action. There is a French uh, philosopher his name is uh, Jean Paul Sartre and he said something like man is the sum of his action definition of man man is what what is man man is the totality of his action an action has three aspects, what you think, what you say, and what you do. And the Sanskrit word for action is karma. When you produce an action, that is your continuation. 
And when this body disintegrates, you continue always with your action. Nothing is lost. We have learned about the law of conservation of matter. We know that matter, you cannot create new matter. You cannot destroy matter. And also the law of conversation, uh, conservation of energy. You cannot create new energy. You cannot destroy energy. You can transfer energy. <laughs> so nothing is lost. And, uh, and the French scientist Lavoisier said, uh, nothing is born, nothing dies. Rien ne se crée, rien ne se perd. Very close to the Heart Sutra. He did not, uh, he, he, is, he was not a Buddhist. <laughs> but he did practice looking deeply into reality and he found the same thing. Nothing is created. Nothing is destroyed. Very close to, 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 to the removal of the notion of birth and death, being and non-being. It's possible that scientists and Buddhist practitioners working together, they will support each other. So everything we produce in terms of thought, speech and action will continue us. Don't imagine that uh, that they will disappear. No. Every thought that you produce has your signature. You cannot say, it's not my thought. (laughs) (laughs) Everything you say carries your signature. You are the author. And that is your continuation. So when you see this body of mine uh, disintegrate, don't think that Thay is no longer there. Thay is still there in his new forms. And look at his actions. His action continues him. So all of us should see that, that we do not end at all with the disintegration of this body. We continue always, more or less beautifully. It depends on how we practice. <laughs> So to produce is a karma hetu, karma hetu, the goals, karma goals, karma goals. And to ripe the fruit is called a karma fruit. And sometimes we don't need to wait very long. The goals bring the effect right away. As soon as you say something nice, kind, forgiving, you feel wonderful, and the other person feels wonderful also. So the goals and the effect can go together very quickly. To believe that uh, 
a cloud can die a cloud can pass from being into non-being is not the truth it's not scientific either so to believe that we will die and become no one is also wrong thinking wrong view we continue always and it is with the practice it is possible to continue beautifully and if you can my friends if you can keep your bodhicitta your beginner's mind alive surely you will make your future much more beautiful for you and for others and then we have a right livelihood select a kind of uh, livelihood that uh, goes along with the insight of non-discrimination, understanding and compassion. And then you have uh, the element of uh, right uh, religions. We already learned about this. The practice of uh, selective watering of, of seeds. In gratitude, uh, you have offered, you have watered the good, the seed of love in me. In gratitude, I will water the seed of love, understanding, and happiness in someone too. We support each other in our relationship. And uh, we refrain from watering the negative seeds. We remember to water our flowers every day. And there are only two more left that the right mindfulness. and right concentration. And we know that mindfulness is uh, the energy that helps us to go home to the here and the now and live deeply our life. Cultivating helps us to concentrate and to make a breakthrough and to get the right view that is the foundation of right thinking, right speech, and right action. And this is the path proposed by the Buddha, not only for monks and nuns, but for every one of us. And the five mindfulness trainings, uh, they reflect the teaching of the Four Noble Truths and also the teaching of the Noble Eightfold Path. The other day we spoke about um, the three doors of liberation. And the first door is uh, Shunyata. It means emptiness. And we have learned that emptiness does not mean non-being. To be empty means to be empty of a separate existence. 
the flower is there, but she is empty of a separate existence. She is made only of non-flower elements. And we have to see the nature of emptiness in us, in the flower, in the cloud, in our beloved, in us, in order not to be victims of despair. and discrimination. The second concentration is the concentration on signlessness. It means that we should not count on the appearance. When our beloved cloud is no no longer in the sky, we should not think that our cloud has died. We should know that it is impossible for our cloud to die. And we should look for our cloud in her new manifestation. So when we drink our tea, we can say hello to our cloud. Nothing is lost. And therefore, uh, what we do not see with our eyes does not mean that they they are not there. There, there, there are a lot of clouds in this, uh, in this Dharma hall. You don't see it. But all of us know that water vapor is there. When we breathe out, there's <laughs> a lot of water. You don't see it. But the water vapor is the cloud, non-visible. It needs to touch something cold in order to be apparent, to be seen. Suppose there is a mountain and the air go in this direction. In the air you don't see cloud, but there is a, there is a water vapor in it. And when the air encounters the mountain, it cannot continue, it has to go up. And when it go high like this, it meets with the cold, and suddenly it becomes visible. The water vapor becomes visible as a cloud. So when you don't see it, don't say that it is not there. It is there. It's like in this hall, many television signal, radio signal are crossing, but we don't see it. You cannot say that they do not exist. So we should not rely so much on the appearance outside. And that is the practice of signlessness. And when a person who is uh, close to us is no longer in her usual form, we should not be despair. She continues always. And you have to find her in her new manifestation, maybe more beautiful than before. And maybe she is in you. Therefore, that uh, allows us not to become a victim of despair, anger, and so on. So that is the practice of concentration called signlessness. 
And the third is the concentration called aimlessness. The other day we spoke about um, a wave in search of water. As a wave, she's uh, scared. She suffers from the notion of beginning, ending, going up, going down, more or less beautiful than the other waves. But once she realizes that she's water, she loses all her afflictions. She has a good time going up, a good time going down. She's free from the notion of birth and death, beginning and ending. And she doesn't have to go and look for water elsewhere. She is water right in the here and the now. Our nature of no coming, no going, no birth, no death, no being and non-being, we don't have to look for it anywhere, elsewhere. We are in it. That's called nirvana. Nirvana is not some place outside. Nirvana means the realm of no birth, no death, no being, no non-being, no coming, no going. And that is uh, the true nature of all that is. And if uh, the wave does not have to go and search for water, we don't have to go and look for nirvana. We are in it. We have been nirvanized for a long time. <laughs> and if uh, we practice uh, deep looking meditation, we touch, we touch our true nature of no birth and no death, no coming and going. And we are free from all kinds of fear, including the fear of non-being. In Buddhism, we uh, learn there are two kinds of truth, the conventional truth, where people still talk about birth and death, good and evil, suffering and happiness. But when you touch the ultimate, all these opposite notions disappear and you are free. So with the practice of the conventional uh, uh, truth, we can get some relief. But the greatest relief you can get only when you touch nirvana, you touch the ultimate, your true nature of no coming, no going, no birth, no death, no being and non-being. There was a lay person in the time of the Buddha, his name is Anatta Pindika. He has served the Sangha and the Buddha more than 30 years and got a lot of happiness during that time. One day the Buddha hear that he was dying. So he came to visit him and after that he, he appointed uh, Shariputra, he, one of his senior disciples, to look after Anathapadika, to help him to die peacefully with no fear. 
It is Anattarabhipinika who invited the Buddha to the country of Shravasti and offered him a practice center, a park called Anattarabhipinika Park. And when Sariporra came with his younger brother in the Dharma, Ananda, Anattarabhipinika could not stand, uh, sit up because he was so weak, he was dying. Sariputra said, Dear friend, don't make any effort. We will bring two chairs close to you and we will talk with you. And when the monks sat down, Sariputra asked, Dear friend, how do you feel in your body? Is the pain in you subside or is it increasing? Anatta Medica said, Dear Venerable, it does not seem that the, the the pain in my body has decreased. It is increasing all the time. And Sariputra said, in that case, let us meditate together. I will offer a guided meditation. Let us uh, practice uh, the four recollections. Just as focus of attention, uh, attention on the Buddha, Dharma, and the Sangha. Sariputra was a very intelligent monk. He said that if he can draw the attention of uh, Anattapinika on the three jewels, uh, he will suffer less because he loved the three jewels so much. He had a great deal of pleasure serving the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. And in fact, three minutes of recollection helped Anattapinika to smile. He got a balance between joy and pain. If you are to accompany a dying person, remember that. In her, in him, there is a seed of happiness. If you care to talk about that, you have diminished the pain and have the seed of happiness to manifest, and that person will suffer less. And when the monks saw uh, Anatta Pedika smile, they said, Now let us continue with our guided meditation. Breathing in, I see the element earth in me. I am made of non-me element. Breathing out, I see the element water in me. Breathing in, I see the element heat in me. Breathing out, I see the element air in me and out of me. I am made of non-me element. Breathing in, I'm aware of this body. This body is not me. I'm more than this body. I am my action. I have done so many good things for the Buddha, the Dharma, and Sangha. That is my continuation. Breathing in, I know this body has come from nowhere. It has not come from the north nor the south. When conditions sufficient, my body manifests. Breathing out, I know my body will go in, will not go anywhere. When conditions are no longer sufficient, my body disintegrates, and I continue with my action. I am free from this body. It's very important to help the person 
no, to identify himself or herself with the body. She is more than her body. And you who sit close to her, you should use your wisdom in order to help her not to be attached to this body. This body is not her. And uh, suddenly, Adanta Pinika began to cry. The Venerable Ananda, who is uh, younger than Sariputra, was very surprised. He said, Dear friend, why do you cry? Do you still regret something? And Anatta Pitika said, No, Venerable Ananda, I don't regret anything. Or, you, you might not succeed in your meditation. No, I do. I succeed very well in my meditation. But why are you crying? Anatta Pitika said, Dear Venerable, I cry because I am so moved. I have served the Buddha and the Sangha more than 30 years, but I have never heard such a wonderful teaching and put into the practice. I am free now. I am so happy. I am released. Ananda said, Dear friend, you don't know. We monks and nuns, we receive this teaching almost every day. Anatta Mirika tried to say, Dear Venerable Ananda, there are those of us lay practitioners who are so busy in our daily life. We are caught up with so many things. But there are still many of us who have enough time to receive and practice this wonderful teaching. So please go home and tell the Buddha, our teacher, that many lay practitioners are capable of receiving this practice. So please tell the Lord to dispense also this teaching to lay people. And that is the last word spoken by Ananta Penika. Ananda said, well, I will do that. I will tell the Lord about your last request. And after that, Anatta Padika smiled and passed away very peacefully. And this is a, a text recorded in the, in the Tripitaka, in the Holy Scripture, available both in Sanskrit, in Pali, and in Chinese. And I myself have translated that, uh, that discourse into English, French, uh, Vietnamese, and it is available in the Plum Village chanting book. You may like to, to study that text uh, uh, and continue with this teaching uh, offer today. Dear brothers and sisters in the Dharma, it has been wonderful to be practicing with you in five days. And we have water, many good seats in us. And many sh- the children look very happy also. <laughs> We hope that everyone can continue the practice, bring the practice home. And we know that we need a Sangha to continue. Hopefully, uh, our monastic brothers and sisters will organize a retreat uh, like this next year here. Uh, Even if uh, they cannot come, because they can come only 
twice, uh, every two years. There are many countries in Europe and Asia uh, he has to go. So, <laughs> so uh, uh, dear Sangha, you are my continuation here. You do the work. You organize the retreat. You allow uh, friends to come and profit from this uh, teaching and practice. You are a continuation of the Buddha. You are a continuation of Thai. Uh, uh, please do your best to maintain the mind of love alive. It will furnish you uh, with enough energy to continue with the practice. No coming, no going, no after, no before. I hold you close to me. I release you to be so free because I